On today's episode, Anna shares the story of Herbert Mullen, a schizophrenic convinced that murder would protect California from a destructive earthquake. Then later, Ashley shares the story of serial killer Robert Hansen, a quiet baker whose love of hunting large game trickled over into human prey, making him one of the most calculated and sadistic killers to date. Welcome to Crime Bar. Good morning, Ashley. Hello. Okay, so I know I said I would cover the Zodiac Killer today. Yes, I was very much looking forward to it. But (laughs) (laughs) I accidentally came across a murderer that I wanted to cover more. I got sucked in. I got sucked in, so I had to cover it. And I apologize if you were all hyped up all week about hearing about the Zodiac. I mean, I wasn't hyped up, but... It's fine. I didn't keep you up at night. No. You were so excited. No. Yeah. Well, I'm instead, I'm going to cover the story of Herbert Mullen. Oh, I've never heard of that. You're in for a treat. Him. I've never heard of it. Herbert. (laughs) I don't know why I have such a hard time taking that name seriously. No offense to all the herbs out there. I have a feeling we don't have a single Herbert listening. That might be our largest demographic of (laughs) listeners. 10% Herberts. It might be. Okay. So Herbert Mullen was born on April 18th, 1947 in Salinas, California. He grew up nearby in Santa Cruz, which I know you know, but it's just a really cute, sleepy, beachy town in Northern California. So cute. Very. I couldn't find much on his family situation other than the fact that his parents were named Gene and Bill, and he had an older sister named Patricia. I did see that his father was a furniture salesman and a World War II vet. Uh, Supposedly, he was really strict and talked constantly about his experiences during the war, but nothing I read said anything negative about the family. Um, They were described as caring, sweet people. Okay. So Herbert was popular growing up and had a steady girlfriend. He was described as super friendly and intelligent and played football. Wait, did I miss how old this guy is? Like, when was he born? 1947. Okay. So I just am jumping right into high school years. Oh, yeah. No, that's fine. I just wanted to figure out what era we were in. Yeah, 47. Um, But he was actually voted most likely to succeed in high school. And I'm not trying to blame any of these children, but um, they were very wrong. (laughs) They really messed up on that call. (laughs) Um, Sadly, Herbert's best friend, uh, Dean Richardson, died in a car crash shortly after they had graduated from high school. This absolutely devastated him, completely flipped his world upside down. This loss seemed to trigger the beginning of his very bizarre behavior. Supposedly, he built a shrine, a few shrines actually, uh, for his best friend in his bedroom and spent hours and hours alone at them. Around this time, he also suddenly became obsessed with natural disasters, reincarnation, and Eastern religions. And as I'm reading this, I'm like, Ash, if you don't make me a shrine, (laughs) I will be so pissed. You're not even my best friend if you don't do it. So this odd change in behavior really scared his friends and family because they could see his mental state deteriorating. Um, It just kept getting worse and worse. 
in the fall of 1965, he started attending Cabrillo College to study engineering. The oh, smarty. Yeah, smart. Sounds hopeful. Smarty pants. Uh, the following spring, he ran into a man named Jim Guianera. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, he was an old friend of his best friend, Dean. And that's the friend that had passed away in the car crash. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim gave Herbert his first ever joint. And Herbert actually later blamed Jim's marijuana for damaging his brain. Oh, my yeah. God. Okay, no. He traces not- it all back to Jim's weed, basically. Marijuana doesn't do shit to anybody. It well, literally mellows you out. It doesn't damage your brain or make you kill people. Uh, correct, but you will find out with a little bit of research that weed can trigger certain things if you are already mentally oh, really? ill. Yes, it's very fascinating. I, I went into a little bit of a rabbit hole with this. Oh. So, so in 1967, he got engaged to his high school girlfriend, Loretta. The on and off again relationship became strained. They would break up for six months and then eventually get back together. Just a very typical high school relationship. Very much so, yeah. Not only had Herbert become violent suddenly, but he was also struggling with the fact that he was attracted to men. Okay. So he opened up to her about the possibility of being gay in 1968. And the following year, he had his first sexual encounter with a male and then broke off his engagement right after that. Okay. Fair. Yeah, good. Handled it well. Yeah. Herbert had started taking huge doses of acid, and this obviously did not help his fragile mental state. No. No. When he was 21, he willingly went to a mental hospital in Mendocino. Oh, really? So he was like not like in de- he was aware of his problems. He wasn't like in denial. Completely or- aware. And you'll see that pattern throughout his life where sometimes he was forced to go and others he was like, I need this help. So that's a kind of an interesting pattern about yeah, his that life. Is interesting. Yeah. So over the next few years, he moved around a lot and picked up odd jobs as a truck driver, dishwasher, gas station attendant and a boxer. And according to criminalminds.fandom.com, He did a brief stint as a boxer, but had to be forcibly removed from the ring when he wouldn't stop beating his opponent. Yeah, I mean, he's on acid. Yeah, this was more than a hobby at this point for this guy. I think it was just his way of getting his violent rage out. So one night at a family dinner, he started imitating his brother-in-law's every single move. And apparently this is an indication of schizophrenia. Wait, it's, like the like when you're a kid and you're trying to be annoying with your siblings and you like mimic what they're doing? Exactly. So he was mimicking as an as a grown adult, this other grown adult. So it's known as echopraxia and its definition is the involuntary repetition or imitation of another person's actions. Schizophrenia is a very serious mental disorder and requires lifelong treatment. Those with schizophrenia have a difficult time separating reality from delusions and hallucinations. Therefore, their behavior is affected drastically. They can see and hear things that don't exist, as well as have false beliefs that aren't a reality. Over the next few years, he was in and out of several institutions, never lasting long and always ending back out on the streets. Sometimes he voluntarily admitted himself and other times it was unwilling. He didn't stay on top of his medications and didn't attend his therapy sessions. And it was around this time that he began ritualistically burning his penis with a lit cigarette. 
Oh. <laughs> yeah, things are going downhill fast. What? <laughs> yeah. Ritualistically. I don't know what that is. I don't know if there's chanting involved or music playing in the background, candles lit, but. You didn't find anything? Nope. I literally, oh. and I didn't find, it's funny because I've noticed this with this particular person. I don't know if you've noticed this during research is that certain websites, they kind of do an overview but then there's like a few that really dive into the psychology of a certain patient and you'll be able to find certain things like on a chart, like, oh, by yeah. age this, he started doing this. Yeah. And there's no description of it, just, hey, Herbert was burning his penis at this point. Ritualistic. Ritualistically. Ritualistically. <laughs> wow. Couldn't leave that out. Wow. By age 23, three different doctors had diagnosed him with schizophrenia. San Luis Obispo County Hospital stated... As a result of a mental disorder, he is a danger to others, a danger to himself, and gravely disabled. FBI profiler Robert K. Kessler believed that his use of LSD accelerated the mental illness. Drugs alter the levels of neurotransmitters in the brain, and research suggests that schizophrenia can be caused by a change in dopamine and serotonin. So while drugs don't directly cause schizophrenia, they speed up the process. And it's interesting. So even weed. What? Yes. Oh, so I thought you said even we, and then you dropped off, and I'm like, even we what? <laughs> oh no, no, weed pot. Yeah. So even the devil's weed, lettuce. Yeah. So it it, it says that um, LSD, amphetamines, and marijuana may trigger symptoms in individuals that are susceptible. So if you're not susceptible, then it's not going to do anything. But yeah. if you unfortunately, like, there was a guy in my high school growing up. Um, that started taking shrooms and was smoking weed um, regularly and he ended up having a mental break and it triggered mental illness, which is very sad. Yeah, that's sad. You just never know, you know, you don't like go to the doctor to see if you're possibly gonna be a schizophrenic one day, yeah. so it's unknown. Yeah. In 1972, at the age of 25, he moved back into his family's home located in the Santa Cruz Mountains. So at this time, he was hearing full-blown voices in his head, and those voices were telling him that an incredibly destructive earthquake was coming. And guess what would be the only solution to this natural disaster? Um, Human sacrifice. Oh. <laughs> no. Not That's an- logical. <laughs> what? What year was this? So this is in 1972. Oh, so that big 89 earthquake wasn't for like... Not yet. Yeah. Not yet. It's pretty far off. Yeah, but he was convinced that killing people would save California. And that same year, some mathematician predicted that a devastating earthquake would occur along the San Andreas Fault. Yeah. Specifically on January 4th, 1973. So Herbert hears this and his paranoia escalates. And his birthday fell on the anniversary of the ginormous San Francisco earthquake in 1906. Oh, wow. So he felt that he was like the only man for the job. So he felt this like weird connection to earthquakes. To earthquakes, exactly. It was okay. like deeply ingrained in him. I've never heard of that. That's so weird. I didn't know it was something to be obsessed about, but no. now we know. Herbert felt that the Vietnam War had caused so many deaths that Mother Nature was able to stall any earthquakes due to blood sacrifice. I had such a hard time writing that sentence in a way that made sense. So I translate that as basically there had been enough bloodshed during the war to placate the earth. But now that the war was ending, he'd need to kill more people to keep the earthquakes away. Uh, and in okay. my head, I'm like, so you're you're scared of earthquakes because you don't want to be killed. So you're going to kill more. It, yeah. I'm trying to. Well, there's no logic. I know. I'm trying to reason with the unreasonable. Yeah. yeah. 
Herbert explained, we human beings through the history of the world have protected our continents from cataclysmic earthquakes by murder. In other words, a minor natural disaster avoids a major natural disaster. This is like the most bizarre fixation. I've never heard of someone like fixating on a specific, but like a natural disaster because there's no way to predict those or, you know, I think that's probably why the maybe this mentally ill man did is being out of control of something and wanting to control it by something else. I don't know. I (laughs) I can't help him. (laughs) Herbert began his mission to kill and in quotes, save California on October 13th, 1972. He came across a homeless man named Lawrence White hitchhiking along Highway 9. Herbert pretended to need help with his car engine and struck him with a baseball bat. He repeatedly beat the man until he was dead. Herbert claimed that he thought the man was Jonah from the Bible. He said the man had sent him messages telepathically and that he wanted to be killed to save the others. Lawrence's body was found the very next day. Only 11 days later, he took the life of his second victim. Mary Guilfoyle was 24 years old and a student at Cabrillo College. She was running late for an interview and figured hitchhiking would be the fastest way to get there. Herbert pulled over to pick her up and proceeded to immediately stab her in the chest in the back. Immediately? Immediately, just cut right to the chase. After killing her, he cut her body up into tiny pieces and scattered the remains along the road. Only one of my resources stated that he hung her intestines from tree branches so that he could examine them for pollution. Pollution? Yeah. So he was clearly thinking that her body was like contaminated with something unknown. Oh my God. This is mental illness mixed with acid in like every way. Absolutely. Her body wasn't found until the following year. It doesn't sound like he had any intention of covering up his crimes. I don't think he felt a reason to because he was convinced that he was doing God's work. Yeah. All this time, he deeply believed that Albert Einstein was telepathically informing him that he is the leader of his generation. Yeah. (laughs) All the while. So a little over a week later on November 2nd, he confessed his sins at a church in Los Gatos. He was, he was absolutely certain that the priest wanted to be his next victim. Voices in his head. He, what? Yeah. Yeah. He, so he's confessing his sins and he's like, oh my God, wait, <laughs> this priest wants to be next. So he, is, is that what he said about the others? Like he, he thought that they wanted to be. Oh yes. It was sacrificed? all like biblically related that he, like, for example, he thought the homeless man was Jonah from the Bible. Yeah. He always thought that they would telepathically tell him that they wanted to be next to help save humanity. Mm. Voices in his head told him that he volunteered himself as a sacrifice. He brutally stabbed Father Henry Tomei with a hunting knife and he bled to death in the confessional. Oh my gosh, he did it like literally at- in the in- confessional booth. Wow. And there were um, witnesses, <laughs> by the way, he just had no regards to doing this privately. Wow. After killing the priest, he decides that he wants to join the U.S. Marines. Okay. He surprisingly passes the psychiatric tests as well as the physical tests. The only reason he was denied entry, the only reason, was because of his drug use. And because of this rejection, he actually stops using drugs because he believed that they were causing all of his problems. 
And for a quick minute, I was like, yes, Herbert. Like, that's yeah, good. Herb, that's progress. You're, you're onto something. Yeah, you're taking control. But things do not improve. Okay. Um, he blamed the marijuana that his friend Jim Guianera sold him for so, ruining his chances. Yeah, so that's where he, like, traces it all the way back to the gateway. Exactly. <laughs> so it's not the years and years of acid and weed mm -hmm. abuse. It's Jim's fault for selling him that very first joint. It, yeah. Exactly. He bought several guns and planned on killing Jim. His body count went from three to eight on January 25th, 1973. Herbert drove over to Jim's house on Mystery Spot Road, only to find out that he had moved. The house was now occupied by another old friend named Kathy Francis, and she gave Herbert Jim's new address. Oh. This is so like reminiscent of Manson. Oh, it absolutely is. And you'll see. Herbert drove over to Jim's new house in Santa Cruz and shot both he and his wife, Joan, in the head before stabbing them repeatedly. Oh, oh wow. Overkill. Yes, absolutely. After they died, Herbert drove back over to the house that Kathy Francis now occupied oh, no. and murdered Kathy and her two sons who were only four and nine years old. Oh. There is some debate on whether or not he murdered Kathy and her two sons before driving over to Jim's. The order is uncertain, but regardless, he killed five innocent human beings that day. Wow. Less than a month later, he was exploring Henry Cowell Redwoods State Park when he came across four boys camping. He pretended to be a park ranger and chatted casually with the boys. The boys were actually camping there illegally, and Herbert told them that they had to leave immediately because they were polluting the forest. The boys refused to leave, so Herbert shot all of them and left their dead bodies in the woods. Oh my gosh, how old were they? And when you say boys, are just young men or yes, actual yeah, yeah, I think I believe it was like 13, 14. I don't know the exact oh, ages. actual yeah. kids. Yeah, like actual ch yeah, children. Wow. Um, the, Where were their parents? Why are they camping? <laughs> I know, I know. We can't, I know we can't Why blame them. Why are they in school? Times are different, man. Times are different. This was in the 70s. So, you yeah. know, anyways. Um, according to Herbert, he had telepathically asked whether or not he could kill them. And they said yes. Their corpses were not found until the next week. Only three days later, he took the life of his last victim. On February 13th, 1973, Herbert drove by a man weeding the lawn at his home. His name was Fred Perez, and he was a retired fisherman and complete stranger to Herbert. For literally no reason at all, Herbert pulled his car up to the man's house, fired a single shot, killing Fred instantly. The murder was committed in broad daylight with numerous people around, one of the witnesses was able to write down his license plate and gave it to the police. Oh, thank God. Yeah, absolutely. Minutes later, the police captured Herbert on Highway 9. He didn't put up a fight at all. When authorities searched his apartment, they found a rosary pouch that belonged to Father Tomei, newspaper articles about his murders, Jim Guianero's address written in an address book, and a Bible. So I'm like looking at this, and it to me that doesn't seem like an erratic man just murdering on the spot. The fact that he took souvenirs yeah. and planned. So yeah, I that's weird. It seems contradictory. Absolutely. Herbert confessed to all the murders and explained that all of this occurred to prevent an earthquake. 
And thanks to him, there hadn't been a single one because of his work. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Herb. (laughs) Okay, Herb. But weirdly enough, a 5.8 magnitude earthquake hit Southern California only eight days after he was arrested. He felt that this only justified and proved that what he was doing was for the greater good. Of course it did. Ultimately, prosecutors were able to try him for 10 of the 13 murders that he had committed and because Herbert had come clean about the killings, they basically just had to rule whether or not he was insane or if he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. He pled guilty, or he pled not guilty by reason of insanity. And like the truly mentally insane individual that he is, he tried representing himself in court. Oh. <laughs> like they always do. Yeah. No shock that he was not deemed mentally competent enough. Good. And he, no matter how hard he tried to fight it, he was given a public defender. During his trial, Herbert referred to the voice in his head as die songs. And even though he appeared completely insane in court, prosecutors were able to find evidence that the murders were premeditated. Therefore, he was culpable and convicted of all 10 murders. On August 19th, 1973, he was sentenced to life in prison and is still alive today at Mule Creek State Prison in Ione, California. Ew. So wait, what year was he? How old is he now? He was born in the 40s? He was born in 47. Okay, so... I'm going to let your brain do the math on that uh, one. I was just saying... Okay, so I'm going to let you do that math. I was going to say, I can't <laughs> even keep squirting cornhole, so I don't think I'll be able to do that. What, should we just whip up our calculators right now? I'm literally doing it. Oh, my God. But at 1947? <laughs> yeah, 2020 minus 1947. So he's 73. That's young. No. How's that possible? Oh, yeah, that is possible. I guess I don't know how to do math even with the calculator because I got 46, so I must have clicked something <laughs> wrong. I was like, how is it 46? Right, it's 1947. So yeah, I 73. Yeah. Wow, that was embarrassing for both of us. I know it really was. Out of four, <laughs> not even a calculator could help us. But funnish fact, I mean funnish because it has to do, yeah, because it has to do with murders. That's not, it, to me it's fun, but to everyone else it's kind of like, oh, that's sad. Um, Herbert's killings were often mistaken for Edmund Kemper's because he was also active in Santa Cruz at that time. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting and a very awful time to live in Santa Cruz. Oh my God, yeah. Um, Edmund is the one that was also known as the co-ed killer, but um, this story isn't about him. So um, no, We're not going to talk about Ed. No, not now. That was the story of the schizophrenic murderer, Herbert Mullen. Very good. That you, is um, unsettling and... It's unsettling, and I feel like it's always hard when you're writing. I mean, obviously, serial killers are mentally ill. End of story. You don't do that when you're normal. Of course, yeah. But for some reason, this one, because he was just so obviously deranged, like he wasn't like a Ted Bundy that was able to have a relationship and like say the right things. This guy was off his rocker. So through and through. Through and through. So you almost, I mean, I personally sometimes feel bad when I'm like, this monster or something like that. I'm like, this guy didn't even know what was up and down at this point. So it's it's strange discussing someone like him. But did he? Because like... It's he, always up for debate. Yeah. I mean, obviously he planned and he took souvenirs. It's, I guess it's, I don't know, it's hard to say, but either way. He definitely played up the deranged card. So oh, you I'm, never yeah, know. once he's caught, for sure. Exactly. You never know. And in my head, I'm like, anytime you think Albert Einstein is telepathically telling you that you're about to save the world. Or that anyone is telepathically telling you please kill me why can't people just use their words you know if, if they want it they can just say it you don't get to decide I mean there could have been a message that got mixed up in the telepathic stuff you know 
I guess. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, Anna. Okay, Anna. <laughs> I'm just trying to have some empathy for the poor guy, but not no. the poor, not a poor guy, no. not a poor guy. He doesn't deserve any. No, a monster. Okay, well that's my story. That was good. Thanks, Ashley. You did a good job. What story are you covering this week? You kept it a secret. Uh, this week I'm going to do the story of Robert Hansen, the butcher baker. Ooh, I've heard about this. This is a good one. Have you? I hadn't heard about it until I was just researching like the most fucked up. uh, Well, coincidentally, it's a serial killer. I didn't mean for both of us to do that. Um, but I was just researching. I Googled like the worst serial killers in history. That's literally what I did. I said the most gruesome murders of all time. And it it was like top five or something. And I'm like, well, obviously I have to listen to this one. So most of my information came from Wikipedia um, and a YouTube documentary called Crime Stories, which I highly suggest looking into. Um, They cover like a lot of stories that are, they're just told really well. Crime Stories? Is it like a podcast, website, TV show? No, it's a YouTube. Well, I don't know if it's a YouTube show. It's like a series sort of thing. Yeah. That's cool. Um. And then like tons of different articles that obviously I'll add to our website. Um, But I just want to clarify ahead of time. This story really focuses more on the killer's life story than the victims, mostly because there were so many victims, but also there was really very little information I could find on who they were like as people and their loved ones that they left behind and so forth. And then similar to what you mentioned about the psychology on your killer there's a ton of information on this guy's psychology so I went down this really deep rabbit hole of his mind and um so obviously that focuses more on him than on the victims it's like an unfortunate pattern that you see a lot and it's something I was kind of shocked about when we started doing all of this is how much the murderer is highlighted and not the victim and I guess it's because the victims we can relate more to, but the murder is something that's so different than us. So it's ultimately like this morbid fascination. So I think people focus. Yeah, but more I also I also think it just it's like, you know, the victims are no longer there. They're no longer present. They're no longer they're gone. And so mm-hmm. the person remaining is the one who did all of these horrible things. So naturally that's what people are focusing on. That's very and, true. And you know, if you don't have loved ones left behind who can advocate for your memory and keep your memory alive and all that it's it's just sad that you know some victims can just sort of fall through the cracks absolutely so robert hansen was born on february 15th 1939 so he's an aquarius okay um and he grew up in esterville iowa his mother was a homemaker and his father was a danish immigrant who had owned and operated a bakery He spent the majority of his childhood and teenage years as a loner. He was an only child, and his parents didn't really have a lot of money, so they made him work long hours in the family's bakery after school, which I'm sure helped isolate him from his peers even more. So his parents were super, super religious, and he had a really tough relationship with his dad, who was said to be very domineering and difficult to please. And his relationship with his mom wasn't that much better, but for different reasons. She wasn't assertive and she kept to herself. So she never intervened or objected to the ridicule and mistreatment that Hansen went through at the hands of his dad. So even though it seems like it was his parents that were the biggest obstacle standing in the way of him being, you know, normal and having friendships and that sort of thing, 
it sounds like they were kind of one of the only reasons he was so lonely. Uh, he was super, super skinny, like sickly in appearance, kind of skinny. Yeah. He had a very severe stutter, which made him feel really shy and soft-spoken. And as he got older, he developed such severe acne that it left his face permanently scarred. So this poor guy not only looked different, but the fact that like even the speech impediment, that does so much for a kid's development, like just their confidence. Yeah, of course. So it's really sad. I mean, but not super surprising that basically throughout his whole childhood and, and teenage years, he was bullied by his classmates. And the bullying was so relentless that it made school just a daily torture. Whenever he'd work up the courage to talk to the pretty girls at school, he was rejected and mocked for his speech. Yeah. So despite being born naturally left-handed, his parents and teachers forced him to do everything right-handed. So the social side of school was horrible. It was a horrible experience. But then the academic side was horrible too. Why would they try to force their kid to write with the opposite hand? Is that like just some weird form of control or... No, I think, well, I mean, I think today now we know, you know, you can be right or left and it, it all stems from the different sides of your brain. What, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, but I think right-handed is more common. And so especially back then before we understood why some people were right-handed or left-handed, it was considered the wrong hand. Got it. So it's just a lack of knowledge that yeah, made them do that. Okay. It, yeah. So there was just, there was no place for him to excel like at all. He was just... He probably felt so beaten down and like inadequate. Yeah. I feel bad for young Robert. I can't help it. Yeah. I mean, we can feel bad for child for a child. Yeah. I mean, every horrible person was once an innocent child. So it's okay to feel bad about that. Um, So obviously, you know, if he's bullied throughout his childhood, not only at school, but also at home by his dad, it's not surprising that he starts thinking about revenge. He says later that when he became a teenager, he started experiencing very vivid fantasies of revenge. And like, duh, like that's understandable to an extent. We all stand, you know, in the shower and think of go through scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it feels like, okay, I get that. Nothing unusual. But the fact that he is fantasizing about revenge becomes really unsettling when you hear that it's kind of around the same time that he starts getting super into hunting. What a convenient hobby. <laughs> I know. And hunting, actually, it ends up being a lifelong passion of his. When he turns 18, he graduates high school and joins the Army Reserves. And during the one year he's enlisted, he's sent to New Jersey. And it's supposedly at this time that he has his first sexual encounter, which happens to be in a hotel room with a sex worker. And it's believed that he started seeing sex workers regularly while he was in New Jersey. So then after being discharged, he moves back to Iowa and he gets a job as an assistant drill instructor for a police academy. And then he also becomes a volunteer firefighter. And when he's 21, he marries a local girl whose name I couldn't find. And I couldn't find anything that stated he had any type of criminal record by this point. So it seems like kind of a huge jump when he's arrested for arson Mm -hmm. so after his arrest he admitted to police that he intentionally went to his old high school entered the garage that held the school buses and set it on fire interesting what a metaphor yeah he said it was revenge for all the bullying he had experienced there and i that school buses right i don't (laughs) say 
That's exactly like I don't see how that gets revenge on anyone. To yeah, be like the, the physical property in the school didn't do anything to you. It's, yeah, you know, obviously the it's awful like, people inside. And it's yeah, and on the one hand, it's like okay, well, I'm glad no one got hurt, but also like Weird. It, it's just it's <laughs> like what you said, like you can't rationalize exactly. Yeah, um, he ends up only serving 20 months of a three year prison sentence for this crime, and he's ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation. Hansen is diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but at the time, um, it was 1960, and it was actually called manic depression. And he is said to experience periodic schizophrenic episodes. So the psychiatrist who made the diagnosis noted that Hansen had an infantile personality and was obsessed with taking revenge against people he felt had wronged him. That's interesting. So he was pretty much stunted then yeah, like during he, that time period when it started. Yeah. So again, I'm like, how is lighting a bus on fire getting revenge on anyone? Like, I just don't, I don't want to sound like Let's I not support be, it, yeah, but it's no. just like, where is that logic? So anyways, at this point, his wife is like, well, I think this is my cue to leave. And she divorces him while he's still in jail serving his sentence. Don't blame her. Yeah. So what I thought was interesting is that it's three years after the school bus fire incident that the famous McDonald triad is formulated. Interesting. Yeah. In a 1963 article published in the American Journal of Psychiatry, forensic psychiatrist John McDonald wrote, A history of great parental brutality, extreme maternal seduction, or the triad of childhood fire setting, cruelty to animals, and enuresis can signal those who will eventually threaten homicide. So I thought that was really interesting because he checks most of the boxes. I don't know about the maternal seduction, but... But she let him down in other ways where she basically kept her mouth shut when his father was being abusive. Yeah. And I don't know if he was wetting the bed, but the rest of it's definitely true. So after Hansen's release, he's arrested and charged many times over the next few years for petty theft. A year after his divorce, he finds a new chick who is like, yes, I am down to commit the rest of my life to you. And they get married in 1963 and they have two kids. So in 1967, they move their family from Iowa to Anchorage, Alaska. Hansen ends up becoming a very well-liked and respected member of his community there. His wife, Darla, is very religious, and she taught special needs students at a small church school, like a little tiny school attached to it. Hansen becomes known for his gentle family man demeanor, his love of hunting, and... He gets a lot of recognition for the many hunting trophies that he receives over the years. Is that why they moved to Alaska in the first place? Was it basically so he could pursue that more? Uh, I would assume. I didn't like find anything that specified it, but he's so deep into hunting that I would assume so. Because quite a few of the animals he hunted were recorded in trophy hunting world record books. And I don't like I don't support hunting and I don't know anything no. about it, but it sounds like he was just very good at it. He was very heavily He was good involved. at shooting animals. Was, good for you. <laughs> yeah. So, and Alaska is known to be, you know, one of the best places in the world for hunting, mm-hmm. large game specifically. So, I'm I'm just assuming that that is probably the driving force behind their move there. So, Hansen bought a tiny hunting cabin on a remote island. And so many of the prime hunting areas were only accessible by boat or bush planes. So, there wasn't anything unusual about the location of his cabin. Like it was, it was just very common. Okay. Cause my first instinct was, whoa, whoa, whoa. No. <laughs> that was my husband. <laughs> no, no, no. It was for like the area. It was totally normal. And yeah. obviously it was 
totally acceptable that he bought a small plane to transport him there because a lot of places like that it was just necessary yeah so he decides to follow in his dad's footsteps and he also opens a bakery but it turns out that he gets the money to open the bakery by committing insurance fraud oh great something so wholesome (laughs) ruined he claimed that his home had been robbed and valuable hunting trophies had been stolen but when those exact trophies were later discovered in his backyard he said it was a simple misunderstanding and that he just forgot to inform the police that he had miraculously recovered them so five years after moving to anchorage and developing this very nice and respected family man reputation hansen gets arrested twice in december of 1971 The first arrest is for abducting and attempting to rape a housewife. The second arrest is for raping a sex worker, and he's sentenced to five years in prison. My God. So his wife, Darla, not only stays with him, but she fully supports him. Darla. She even takes her kids to visit him while he's in jail. Like the the jail sentence he's serving for raping someone. Other women. Mm Mm-hmm. So even though he is sentenced to five years, he only ends up serving six months. So this is now the second time that he's gone to jail, only to be released super early and subsequently commit more crimes. So he always just gets away with his bad behavior. It's like just tolerated. Yep. So he seems to go back to life as normal, I think, until 1976 when Hansen pleads guilty to larceny after he was caught stealing a chainsaw from a department store. He was sentenced to five years in prison and required to receive psychiatric psychiatric treatment for his bipolar disorder. But the Alaska Supreme Court reduced his sentence and he was released after one year. So this is sentence number three, that he should have been kept behind bars for years, but instead he was released early. And then he, I'm spoiler alert, he goes on to commit even worse crimes. (laughs) So Darla stayed with him throughout all of these arrests. And remember when she met him he had already been arrested for you know lighting that um the bus garage on fire so like he already had a criminal record that she was aware of so she she's a personality type that we don't relate to yeah she wants to fix him you know yep and she's super religious so she thinks god can fix him absolutely after this third arrest uh she starts encouraging him to go to church with her which he did do a little bit but ultimately he wouldn't stick with it and they started to live very separate lives like he operated the bakery she had her own source of income and she took care of the home and the kids and you know so they just they stayed married and she you know supposedly supported him but technically they just kind of lived separately they also didn't like mingle their income and I worked in a bakery when I was younger and like if you're gonna run a bakery yourself like you're there from before the sun comes up until well yeah so it's kind of like it's not weird that they literally didn't mingle in their daily life and then when she would take her kids on trips to visit family out of state Hanson would stay behind understandably to run his bakery but he also did some shady ass shit Mm -hmm. while they were away so before I start in on the details of all the murders it's really important to understand what was going on in Anchorage during this time and that like the overall attitude and relationship between law enforcement and sex workers. So between 1970 and 1980, the discovery of oil and the production of it through Anchorage increased the population like astronomically. I read in an online forum about this oil boom that the population 
grew by 260%. Holy crap. So it's like, you know, sleepy Alaska is suddenly like the city is just booming. (laughs) Yeah. It's hopping. So obviously with this massive, you know, influx of people, the night scene became seedier and crime rates increased considerably and that sort of thing. And there's probably not a lot of like familiar faces at this point. Like you can't really keep track of that many new people. Oh no, not at all downtown Anchorage specifically was a place you could go to day or night and the streets would just be crowded. Like you could drive through downtown and it was blocks of bars and strip clubs and porn shops and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So law enforcement admitted that their workload during that kind of that big boom, that decade of the population increasing, it just increased at such a rapid rate that it was difficult for them to keep up with. So prostitution in Anchorage was at an all-time high. And, you know, that's a profession that police and the media and all that just regard as a high-risk lifestyle. So this means that crimes against sex workers rarely take priority or even garner much attention. But in addition to that, a lot of clubs and bars in Anchorage would offer women six- to eight-week dancing contracts. So this means... Women would often move to Anchorage for just like a really short contracted time before continuing on to a different city or other state. And so from the cops perspective, there's a ton of women who are just regularly cycling through the city, living something like a transient lifestyle almost. So if you don't see someone again, it's not, you don't immediately go to like a dark place in your mind. Not at all. And then, you know, it's so that, that only like decreased the urgency or even the validity when they were reported missing. So on the evening of November 17th, 1981, Sherry Morrow's boyfriend drops her off at the Wild Cherry Bar where she worked as a waitress and a dancer. Sherry's coworkers stated that she told them that evening a man who claimed to be a professional photographer had approached her and offered her money to pose for photos. So because he seemed harmless, she accepted. And this interaction with her coworkers is believed to be the last time she's seen alive. The following day, when her boyfriend realizes that she never came home, he immediately goes to the police and files a missing persons report. But again, given the cop's perspective that these women just cycle through all the time, they just don't take it very seriously. So Sherry's report was tossed onto a stack of at least four other dancers who had been reported missing in the last year, and that was just that. So whether that attitude was, you know, from the police just not caring or there were just no leads to go off of is unclear, but either way, there's no progress made in Sherry's case. You would think that if the boyfriend was reporting their girlfriend missing, that they would go, okay, they're going to be notified if this was like a normal contract ending. You would think that the boyfriend would be aware of this. Totally. And if she was departing, that they would, he would be aware. Yeah. So I think it's strange that they didn't pay any mind to his concerns. But I also think it was really common. And, you know, yeah. who's to say that she doesn't just, you know, didn't care about that boyfriend, you know, from the cop's perspective. That's true. What if she just doesn't care about him and she ghosted him and she left? That's right. You know, true. like what ran away with someone else. Yeah, they can't they can't waste resources on every single person who gets ghosted. Yeah, <laughs> basically. Yeah, that's true. So the following May, a girl named Sue Luna moves to Anchorage to begin a six week dancing contract. She was extremely close to her older sister, Bobby. So Sue was really excited to be closer to her and Bobby's husband, David, and who lived in a nearby town. So while Bobby was really happy to have her sister there, she hated that Sue was working as a dancer. Her husband, David, was interviewed in this documentary, um, the Crime Stories one on YouTube that I mentioned. 
And in it, he says that Bobby was nervous after hearing stories of other dancers in Anchorage going missing recently. So she tried convincing Sue to carry a weapon. And he said that Bobby even offered her own gun as protection. But Sue wouldn't take it. And she waved off her sister's concern. And she reassured her that there was nothing to worry about and that she could take care of herself and all that kind of stuff. And before she leaves to go back to her apartment in Anchorage, Sue promises to visit again on Wednesday, which is her next day off. You gotta trust your sister's gut instincts. <laughs> oh, yeah. I I mean, I agree. But it's also, we all feel like invincible too. Absolutely. And we all feel yeah, like nothing's no, ever going to happen to us. And so I, I totally, I can understand both sides so well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm not blaming. I'm just saying if you told me to do something, I'd be like, yep. Nope. <laughs> yeah, yep, I know. No problem, Ashley. So when that Wednesday comes and goes with no sign of Sue... Bobby gets worried and tries calling her, but when she can't get through, she just decides she's going to drive to Anchorage to check on Sue in person. And when she gets to Sue's apartment, no one answers the door. So she starts talking to some neighbors, and she discovers that it's been at least three days since Sue was last seen, like, around the apartment complex. So right away, Bobby files a missing persons report. A few months later, in September, an off-duty Anchorage police officer is on a moose hunting trip with a friend of his when they come across a buried body along the banks of a river that was 25 miles north of Anchorage. So because this falls outside of the Anchorage PD's jurisdiction, it's actually Alaska State Troopers that are dispatched, and Sergeant Glenn Flothy is the person who like takes over this case. The victim appeared to have been blindfolded with ace bandages. And spent shell casings that were found near the body were later tested and found to be a match to the bullet fragments found inside the body. And at first when I read that, I was kind of like, well, obviously. But then I realized hunting was so common. Oh, that shells could be sprinkled around. Probably everywhere. Yeah. So it actually was a big deal that 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 was confirmed. The victim was identified as 23-year-old Sherry Morrow, the girl who had been reported missing by her boyfriend 10 months earlier. So during this period of time, the police would say that the sex workers that they had regular run-ins with stated that, like, something was going on. There was this, like, sort of feeling of these women being on high alert, and the more girls that went missing, the more the remaining women started implementing things like the buddy system whenever they'd meet with new customers and stuff. There was one girl dead, and at least five missing. So these women were being as cautious as they could be, but... I mean, it was still sometimes very that's dangerous. not enough, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. In April of 1983, 17-year-old dancer Paula Goulding is reported missing after agreeing to meet with a new customer who offered her $200 to simply have lunch with him. Paula hated working as a dancer, and she was desperate to get out of the lifestyle she was in. So her coworkers said that she jumped at the chance to make what seemed like innocent money. She told coworkers that the man seemed really nice. And that he had informed her that his wife and children were away on a trip. So Paula was welcome to stay at his house while she figured things out. And just like the first victim, uh, Sherry, this interaction with her coworkers is the last time that she's seen alive. So two months later in June, a 17-year-old sex worker named Cindy Paulson is offered $200 to perform oral sex on a quiet, unassuming customer that she's never seen before. She states later that his gentle demeanor put her at ease, and because she didn't feel threatened, she accepted the offer. But that changed as soon as she got into his car and he pulled a gun on her. He drove her to his home. 
He chained her by the neck in his basement and then spent hours repeatedly raping and torturing her. Oh my God. And then at one point, he stopped to take a nap on a nearby couch. Oh God. As she's chained up having to like watch this. Yep. So after waking from his nap, he unchained her neck, handcuffed her, and then loaded her into his car. He told her they were going to the airport so that he could fly them to his cabin. He had her lay down on the floorboards of like the back seat during the drive. So she has no idea what direction they're going in. And I mean, who's to say that she even paid attention to where his house was? You know, she was being held at gunpoint. So oh, she's, she says, your... oh, sorry. sorry. So <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Okay, go. <laughs> sorry. <clears throat> so she's like as disoriented as could be. Oh, can you imagine your mental state too? And then you hear that you're going on a plane ride. Like you would just know it's over. Totally. They get to the airport and he leaves her in the car for a few minutes. And she works up the courage to peek outside and saw that his back was to her as he was loading up the plane. She knows this is her only chance. After all that he's already done to her, flying her somewhere means she's going to die. There's just, there's no way around that. So remember, she's handcuffed. She's on the floor in the back seat of a two-door car. This man who has just raped and tortured her for hours is just feet away from her, but she crawls into the front seat and opens the driver's side door. What a badass. I know. Like to have the balls to do that. He sees her immediately, but she takes off running for her life. He's chasing her. She's barefoot and she has no idea where she is or where she's going. She's just trying to outrun him. She ends up running out onto a road, like onto a, a main road, and he she flags down a big rig, and the driver pulls over and lets her in, thank God. Absolutely. The driver wants to take her to the police or a hospital or something like that, but she is so terrified and just wants to go find her boyfriend at the motel that they live in. So the driver reluctantly agrees to drop her off there, but then after he does that, he calls the police. Good. Okay, good. So when Cindy meets with the police at the motel... She tells them everything in very specific detail. She walked them through every horrifying moment that she spent with this man. She described the abductor, what he looked like, his car, his home, the airfield, and he even the plane that she saw him preparing. She described it perfectly. She told them that before deciding to make a run for it from the car, she took her blue sneakers off and left them underneath the passenger seat. She was worried that if she did make it out alive, no one would believe her story. So she decided to leave proof that she had been in that car. Can you even imagine like the intelligence and bravery of this woman? I can't even. I can't even. Like, I, I wouldn't can't fathom it. I wouldn't have. I don't. I mean, I don't know what I would even do in that situation. And you would think that you just wouldn't be thinking logically it's just you'd be so the adrenaline and when I'm anxious fear. my brain shuts off I don't have any logic I kind of go into this like there's no brain activity <laughs> during my anxiety issues yeah. so to think that you're in the ultimate anxiety yeah and you're able to be like okay well no one's gonna believe me anyways to yeah. have that wherewith wherewithal of that yeah it's crazy yeah, it, it was really smart and it was really brave so Cindy agrees to go to the police station because remember they're talking at that motel. Uh, she agrees to go to the police station, but she insisted that the police drive her by the airfield first so that she can point out which plane belonged to the rapist. Like you would she, think that'd be enough. Yeah, she like was like she insisted that was her idea. 
So when they get to the airfield, it turns out that a security guard there had witnessed the whole thing. He corroborated Cindy's story that they had arrived by car. The man walked to his plane and after a moment, a handcuffed woman got out of the car and ran away. The guard said that he saw the man chase her out of sight. Then a few minutes later, he returned by himself and jumped in his car and sped away. But not before the security guard wrote down his license plate number. Thank God. Yeah, good. So police discover that the plane and the car in question are both registered to Robert Hansen. And when Hansen is questioned by the police, he denied the accusation and said that this was all happening because he wouldn't meet Cindy's extortion demands. So he probably like admitted to hiring her and then he's he's twisting it and claiming that she's trying to extort him and he wouldn't do it. So she comes up with this elaborate lie. Okay. So despite having an extensive criminal record, which included attempted abduction and rape, the police believe him. The police thought he was too meek and too quiet to have done any of the stuff that Cindy claimed that he did. <laughs> I don't know if this is like applicable, but... The police were also regulars at Hanson's Bakery. Oh, my God. They're like, I love his croissants, so we <laughs> yeah. cannot put this man behind bars. Like, I don't know if that's it or if it's just because they saw they regularly saw how, like, quiet he was that it just seemed... They unbe- probably... He's probably that guy, because, like, I feel like every town has one, or you hear this you hear this often, where it's like, this guy wouldn't have been capable of hurting a fly. Yeah. I think that was just their attitude. And then what's what I think is even crazier about this is that... The security guard at the airfield cooperated Cindy's account of what happened at the airfield. So how did the police justify that? Like, okay, if they're not going to believe her about being raped, fine. But how would Hanson or the police explain someone witnessing him chase a handcuffed woman? Well, it's like a typical man thinking that they know everything, you know? But why is she handcuffed? Yeah, I know. Why is he chasing her? Like, yeah. why? Like those two, those two things, it's just... it. It doesn't make any sense. And like, what do they have against this security guard who saw that? It was hired to protect and watch. And then he's doing his job. And then he's basically called a liar. Yeah. So then to make this even more infuriating. Right. Hanson tells the cops who are, you know, already leaning towards believing him that he even has an alibi for the time that Cindy claims all of this stuff took place, which also further confused me because it was like, well, you claimed that she was trying to extort you, but now you're saying that you weren't. And now you quickly went to do something else now that you have an alibi. Right. So he actually directs them to speak to his friend, someone named John Henning. And John tells them that Hanson was, in fact, with him during all of that time. So he couldn't have possibly done what he was accused of. So they officially move on from him as a suspect. And then a few months later, in September of 1983, right along the same riverbank where Sherry Morrow was found a year prior police find the body of another adult female. And just like Sherry, this woman was also blindfolded with ace bandages. And again, just like Sherry, there were spent shell casings found nearby that matched the fragments found inside of her body. After testing, it's confirmed that these shell casings came from the same rifle that produced the ones found at Sherry's burial site. Like a hunting rifle? Yeah, I think so. So this victim was identified as Paula Goulding. She was the 17-year-old dancer who had gone missing five months earlier after she had accepted an offer to have lunch with someone. So at this point, it's been over a year since Bobby reported her sister Sue as a missing person. And she and her husband had been 
optimistic for as long as they could be, but they were staying up on the news and paying attention to all these other reports of bodies being found. So after Sherry and Paula's bodies were found, they started riding their horses along the same riverbank on the off chance that they might find Sue's remains. Oh my God. They took that into their own hands then. Yeah. I didn't write down the exact number, but I think at this point there was like upwards of 10 missing women in Sergeant Glenn Flothy from um, the state troopers. He He's convinced that they're all connected and he's desperate to find anything to make a break in the case because there's like nothing to go off of. Yeah. There's, there's no, you know, all of these women were found outside and harsh elements you know and there just isn't a lot to go off of. well it's hard to even send search parties out into that sort of condition yeah so when he hears of a new technique called criminal profiling he decides to contact the fbi team that had developed it flothy was also interviewed in that um crime stories youtube documentary that i mentioned and he said quote when i started telling the fbi profiler about the suspect he said no no you tell me about the victims and I'll tell you about the suspect. So Flothy described the grave sites and the details that they knew of the victims. And he was floored when the profiler told him the following. Evidence linking the suspect to the crimes would likely be found in the suspect's home. The suspect would likely be a white male adult in his late 30s or maybe early 40s. He might be a respected member of the community. He might be a business owner. He might be an avid hunter. He may have low self-esteem and a history of being rejected by women. He might be inclined to keep souvenirs from his murders, such as jewelry that belonged to the victims or maybe their ID cards. And the last thing that the profiler suggests, he might have a stutter. How the heck would you even know that? Like even knowing like the age range, you know, knowing it's up to like the 40s. That's so bizarre to me. Yeah. Now you have to backtrack a little bit back to Cindy Paulson, the girl who had escaped from the airfield. Even though the Anchorage PD had decided that Hansen wasn't the abductor, there was one detective named Greg Baker who had a hunch that his colleagues were wrong. And remember, this is all in the 80s. So in order to explore this hunch, he literally had to go through mountains of boxes and just skim files on files looking for anything on Hansen that could confirm that he was a valid suspect in Cindy's case. And then he finds three reports all filed um, against Hansen by three different sex workers. The first is accusing Hansen of beating her. The second report, he's accused of assault and attempted abduction. And the third report is accusing him of raping her, but he was never charged. So basically these were like unsuccessful attempts to do to these women what he did to everybody else. Basically. And if you're looking at it like a pattern, then it's, you see him, you know, um, he's clearly going to sex workers. He's clearly violent. Yeah. But the, you know, the reports that they're, they're making on him are, um, increasing. You know what I mean? Yes. Or not increasing, but like he's graduating to new things. It's escalating. That's the right word. Thank you. That Mm -hmm. was the word I was looking for. (laughs) So with these newly discovered reports and the FBI criminal profile, they have more than enough to bring him in for questioning. And while they have him at the police station, they simultaneously enforce a search warrant for his home, his vehicle, and his plane. And a really interesting fact about that, the warrant issued to search his property was a really groundbreaking one. 
This was the first time ever that criminal profiling was the sole basis for issuing a search warrant on a suspect's property. That's amazing. Yeah. So at Hanson's home, they discovered jewelry and ID cards belonging to several of the missing women. A rifle that matched the bullet casings found at the burial sites of Sherry and Paula. And a map of the Alaskan bush that had 21 X marks stored in the headboard of Hansen's bed. Like X marks like on a yes. pirate's map. Not only do they find all of this damning evidence, but the basement that Cindy Paulson had described being raped, tortured, and held captive in was Robert Hansen's basement to a T. Every wall was covered in massive animal heads and numerous hunting trophies. The black bear hide rug that she told police she had been repeatedly raped on was right there exactly where she said it would be. And then remember, she had been chained um, like around the neck. Mm -hmm. And police discovered that she had even accurately recalled exactly where the bolts were in the ceiling that connected to the chain. So they believe her now. (laughs) Now. So Hanson denied being involved for as long as possible. But when they showed him all of the evidence that they found in his home... He switches gears by confessing to everything, but also blaming the women for his actions. So he's officially arrested in October of 1983. He told the police in graphic detail how he would lure sex workers into his car using his gentle demeanor and offer of easy money. But once he had them isolated, he admitted to abducting, torturing, and repeatedly raping them, sometimes over the period of several days. Then next, he would drive them to the airfield, load them into his bush plane, and proceed to fly them to that isolated stretch of land where his hunting cabin was located. He would handcuff the women's hands in front of their bodies and blindfold them using ace bandages before releasing them into the woods. He would tell them to run for their lives. He then would wait for a time, giving them a head start, and I think he was also trying to give them the false hope that they had a chance to run to safety and then utilizing his extensive experience as a hunter and his victim's impaired eyesight Hansen would proceed to slowly and methodically hunt them with his rifle once he'd find them he would quietly wait until they paused to rest or maybe paused because they believed that they had lost him and then he would shoot them in the back oh my god it's literally like a scary movie yeah So going off of that map that they found that had 21 X marks on it, Hansen was very proud to direct the police to the burial sites. He was like a little kid proudly showing off his projects. Where he put his toys. Yeah. So the police successfully discovered 14 of the burial sites, and I believe four of the X marks were never located. After admitting to his crimes, this piece of shit matter-of-factly told the police... You can't rape a prostitute. I don't think I've ever wanted to punch a dude more in the face. (laughs) Yeah. So Hanson, he's strongly suspected of killing Celia Van Zanten and Megan Emmerich, who were both 17, and Mary Thill, who was 22. However, he denied it. So given the amount of murders that he admitted to and how proud he was, it was a little bit odd like that he denied these particular murders. But it's been theorized that because these three girls were not sex workers, Hansen's like twisted justification wasn't applicable. Yeah, that's so, interesting. Yeah, so it's like he couldn't or wouldn't allow himself to admit what he had done to them. Like somehow it was less acceptable. 
So if you remember that whole shit show that was the police investigating Cindy yeah. Paulson's escape, um, Hansen had offered the police an alibi from his friend John Henning. But after Hansen was formally arrested and charged, John admitted to lying about being with Hansen the day of Cindy's escape. He told police that Hansen had explained to him that this was just a big misunderstanding. And because John described his friend as being so nice... He thought he was being helpful by providing an alibi. I don't know anyone that would provide an alibi for me. No. Like I, maybe my mom. I think you're nice, but like I'm never going to I'm not going you. down for you. And it's just crazy like how often he's described as nice. Yeah. Like by everyone. It's just like how nice can I would I wouldn't trust someone that nice. No, I wouldn't either. <laughs> I'd be like this is suspicious. Yeah. The only details we know of Suluna's death is that Hansen confirmed that he had in fact abducted her. He told police that he made her strip down and he hunted her in the woods before shooting her to death with his rifle. Her body was one of the 14 recovered and as devastating as it was to learn, you know, how she spent her final moments, her sister Bobby was relieved to finally bring her home and she believed that she was now at peace. And so similar to the story that you did, like I don't always find much in terms of the psychology on the stories that I'm like research, yeah. but I love it when I do because it's that's I think that's what fascinates us. That's what we like the most. I. Yeah. So I, I managed to actually find quite a bit uh, on this guy. So when you are studying the life and then in particular the childhood of him, the lack of power he must have felt is just evident in so many areas. He was the subject of intense ridicule by his peers. And when he wasn't dealing with that, he was under this ridiculous control of a father who is described as someone who ruled with an iron fist. And then in addition, that stutter that he had experienced was just so severe that he often chose not to speak at all. So this means he probably felt a lack of control over something as personal as his own speech. David Hosier of Childhood Trauma Recovery says, quote, Psychological abuse, in particular, has a strong correlation with future behavior. Children who are shamed or humiliated or are punished disproportionately can develop a propensity for cruelty as a direct result of that abuse. Neglect, too, is a big factor because when children don't experience empathy from a parent or a caregiver, they sometimes don't develop the ability to empathize with others. It completely makes sense. I mean, your parents are your heroes when you're growing up, so if they're not doing it, then... You have nothing to mirror, basically. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, his mom didn't do shit when she was witnessing what he was going through at the hands of his dad. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure this made him feel neglected or maybe abandoned by his own mom. But then on top of that, the lack of action on her part may have also created this narrative in his mind that women were weak or useless. And I can also see that like after years and years of wanting to stick up for yourself, that kind of getting misdirected and bottling up and becoming a lot bigger than just sticking up for yourself. Yeah. It just turning into this rage. Yeah, definitely. And then, you know, he obviously developed this intense need for omnipotence, which is a trait that is shared, I think, by like every serial killer. Yeah. Especially ones who experienced childhood neglect or abuse. In an article published in Psychology Today, Gail Melson says on the topic of animal abuse at the hands of children, quote, a child who abuses animals requires immediate intervention and treatment. Animal abuse is often the first manifestation of serious emotional turmoil that may escalate into extreme violence, such as mass killing. 
And so, you know, like in most cases, this warning sign is really easy to identify. But in Hansen's case, the abuse of animals was done under the guise of hunting, which is so common and accepted as a form of sport. So not only was this hobby acceptable in the eyes of those around him, but Hansen was encouraged and his mastering of this sport was like thoroughly celebrated. In an essay titled, Why We May Never Understand the Reason People Hunt Large Animals as Trophies, Criminologist Dr. Xanthi Mallet writes, Since the 1970s, research has shown that the majority of adults who commit violent crimes have a history of animal cruelty in childhood. Some studies suggest that up to 70% of the most serious and violent offenders in prison have repeated and severe episodes of animal abuse in their history. Perhaps hunting large animals is, is an example of someone's need to show dominance over others. Research shows increased levels of hostility and a need for power and control are associated with poor attitudes towards animals, among men in particular. And so, like, it's very clear that hunting provided him with what was likely his first and probably only taste of control. Mm-hmm. So it's plausible that he that continual feeling of like dominance and power he felt when he was taking a life just developed because of the lack of control he had you know in his childhood then when you look at all of the commonalities between Hansen's victims almost all of them were sex workers so targeting a demographic whose profession literally relies on being in a private vulnerable place with a complete stranger it made the tenderloin area of Anchorage an ideal hunting ground for prey Choosing victims who have a notoriously difficult relationship with law enforcement is a really strategic move on the part of, like, you know, so many killers throughout history. A study by the Urban Justice Center found that 30% of street sex workers reported violence at the hands of police, while others reported that police did nothing when the sex workers reported about sexual assaults. Robert Hansen admitted to killing 17 women, although that number is believed to be a lot higher. He also admitted to raping at least 30 women. All of his victims ranged in age from 17 years old to 41 years old. And two of his confirmed victims' true identities have never even been discovered. In February of 1984, he was sentenced to 461 years in prison without the possibility of parole. And after his sentencing, his wife Darla finally divorced him. And all of their assets were put into her name, which allowed her to sell everything and leave Anchorage for good. She took her kids to live closer to her family, and they just all moved on with their lives while he rotted in prison. As he should. Mm-hmm. What a monster. In 2014, at the age of 75, Robert Hansen died in prison from unknown causes. But I <laughs> honestly, hope it who, gives, <laughs> who gives a shit like whatever caused his death? And that's the story of Robert Hansen, the butcher baker. That is just, I think, my worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Obviously being killed by, you know, oh, in being, any scenario is scary, but there's something it's about the, the calculated hunt. Like, it's It's the being so blindfolded, stripped yeah. down, put in the middle of nowhere, and told to run. That in itself is unfathomable. Yeah. It stuck with me for a long time after reading. And that would be it. very hard for, like, the victim's families to know the reality of the last thing that their loved one experienced and having to, you know, live with that for the rest of their lives. Yeah. There are so many victims in serial killings. I mean, it's not just the people who die and it's, I also feel bad for his kids. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, they, their dad's a monster. Yeah. And their mom ultimately did what his mom did, which is just stand by and allow it. Yeah. It's just so sad. 
It really so, is. Cool. Anyways, we covered two psychopaths. Yeah. I didn't mean for that. I think it's fun when we do like two really different stories. So I didn't mean for that to be the case, but I thought yours was so interesting and I'm, I'm kind of glad that you didn't do the Zodiac. Just yeah. Because that was interesting. Yeah. But they're completely different. I mean, earthquakes totally. are making Herbert do it and oh, yeah. you know, this guy's lack of control. So they're, they're different types of cases, both crazy humans, yeah. but very different. Yeah. I am so excited to have the week off because I'm planning on a really good one the following week. So that just gives me more time to prepare. Yeah. The story that I have for next week, I'm glad that it's just my, like, it's just my story being told because it's kind of, there's a lot to it and it was really hard to try to like shorten it to fit two stories in one. But so it's pretty heavy and there's a lot of detail, but um, it'll be nice for you to just, you can stay in your own home and I'll be in my home and we'll do a virtual one and you can just sit back and listen to the story. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love you. I love you too. See you, I was going to say see you next week, but I won't. I'll hear you next week. <laughs> hear you next week. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram and YouTube at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina. We'll see you next week.